Welcome to Cloudlandia. Well, 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 welcome to Cloudlandia. Welcome. Welcome. And I'm feeling the effects of Cloudlandia. Tell me. You know, daily I, I notice more effects of Cloudlandia. Do you? Yes, I actually do. I've been making really conscious efforts to be more aware of my, I call it lost time in Cloudlandia. I've been rereading mm-hmm. your property, your uh, attention, your property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I realize that is, uh, yeah, I do. I, there's a lot of, if you're caught up in Cloudlandia, there's a vacuum that will suck your, an attention sucking vortex of, <laughs> just waiting yeah. to suck up all of your attention. Yeah, with no end. In yeah, sight. well, it's like uh, you know, I think it's kind of like an energetic, you know, dynamic in the sense that our attention is really, you know, our greatest power. You know, when humans can put their attention on something, that's actually quite a power when you think about think about it in the scheme of um, evolution. You know that. The majority of animals, I'll use animals as the contrast here, uh, yeah. they only have very predictable ways of putting their attention on things, yeah. um, you know, related to their survival, related to eating, you know, related to, you know, being what they are. Yeah. And the ability to conjure up attention and put it on something that you've basically created for yourself. And I think that's quite a high level that's a quite a high level skill. Yeah. And it, yeah, and then, and and it attracts other human beings when that happens, you know, the ability to say, "Hey, I've just created this possibility and I want to tell you about this possibility and, you know, see how this connects to you and everything else." So that's quite an ability on the part of one one person in a group of many people has an ability that's greater than any of the other ones to actually put out a you know a possibility of focusing their attention on a something that's new, better, and different, and it's quite a thing. Well, you think about those days back in the day, like you know, from what you, we know about history of you know being everything being passed down through oral traditions, right? Gathered around uh-huh. the campfire uh-huh. at night uh-huh. and, you know, telling <laughs> that was our way of, of that was what was getting our attention in the evenings. We'd all migrate towards the uh-huh. fire and talk and tell stories and we count the day and, Bond, and that yeah. was where all of, it was the social media of the of the age, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was all. This is what was really when I, when I really started thinking about those things. The thing about it was that it was all synchronous and real time. Right? There was no you weren't behind. If you missed what was said at the campfire, you missed it, and there was not mm-hmm. like at another channel going on over here. It was everything, mm-hmm. everybody gathered around that campfire. And it wasn't, 
what Gutenberg was kind of, or the, I guess the written word transcripts and stuff was mm-hmm. where you could, it was asynchronous communication when you could, mm-hmm. even starting with a cave drawing or whatever, you could communicate something in an asynchronous mm-hmm way but no way to distribute it you had to stumble upon it you had to come to it and then it, or it got memorized and i think yes. that was a high skill that one individual had the ability to memorize in one location something that had been said and watched yeah. miles and was able to reproduce it right. probably adding to it and augmenting it and like telephone you know, yeah exactly yeah, uh, probably, you know. Like the Bible, mm, yeah. Add, adding different new features that would make it uh, a better story and right. everything doing it. And, you know, there, there became this powerful this powerful desire to have a better method than that. You know, we to, you know, we have to depend upon <clears throat> individuals whose presence is not predictable or whose performance is not predictable and uh, isn't there a way that we can capture things and make them available at a time when we want to read them and listen to them and everything and uh, you can see how that desire to have stuff we found valuable you know stuff thoughts we found valuable or stories or songs we found valuable or lessons we found valuable and you can just see how that desire would grow and it would pop out with writing you know that things would yeah. get written down they would create um, language that then it was to everybody's advantage to learn in the language because then you could understand what was being said but you could read it alone you could see the words yeah. alone and that you could actually do it you know, it's 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 powerful lot of desire that's gotten us from the old days to the new days. Yeah, I think, and, and it's all that we want to we want to share in a bigger combined understanding of what's going yeah, I look on. Look at that now, like every the the minute there's not even minutes that are left on you know without opportunity like that. He's like the most popular, the most popular things right now is the social media feeds and TikTok, where every you know there's it's the fills in even the two minute opportunity of stillness mm-hmm. that you have is enough mm-hmm. time to get a quick dopamine hit of looking at mm-hmm. the the things. I think I shared with you. In the last few mm-hmm. weeks, I've been experienced going into the coffee shop in the mornings with no phone and realizing mm-hmm. what a you know, what a richer two hours is with no no dopamine. And I'm just I'm really I'm looking at those things, but I have to say, like I have this level of I almost can't imagine just cutting myself off from it. Which is really like you're rationalizing in my mind mm-hmm. the uh, the things like I say, and I say to you too, you know, that part of it is that's how I, I see stuff because I'm so immersed in mm-hmm. pop culture and, and the world 
kind of mm. thing around me that it's the raw material mm. for my observations yeah. through my filter. But that is all just smoke and mirrors. That's just, you know, there's a lot of, if I really put that to the test of what I'm doing is not, <laughs> it's, it's not all, not all crucial, you know. Yeah, well, but well, one of the things, I forget when, oh, we were having every quarter, almost for 20 years. And I know that because we have a booklet that we create. This is about a dozen of us here in Toronto. We create a quarterly booklet. And discussion people group. Discussion group and people will read articles and send yeah. them in to one person who is organizing this. And yeah. she takes it and she formalizes the pages so that everything, that. regardless yeah. of what publication it comes from, she, right. she formats those, it as. I've seen yeah. one of those documents. Yeah. Yeah. Eight and a half by 11, and then it gets spiral bound, and it's this neat, uh, you know, it's yeah. a book of. 30 articles. And what I've done is that I've put a, included at the top of every one of my articles why I submitted the article. In other words, mm. I give it sort of a reason, I give a reason why, you know, that this article seems to be saying such and such and such, you know. So anyway, and no one's followed my example yet. So I'm seeing how long it's going to take for somebody to Say why, they, why. Say, yeah, I do them on five of the 30 uh-huh. articles, and I've done it now for three quarters, and nobody's picked up on my innovation yet. But, Interesting. Uh, but, you know, I can hold on for a long time. I'm the sort yeah. of person that can just keep doing something for a long time. But anyway, we had, uh, we had a great, we had a great meeting, and it was, a lot of articles of current affairs things. So every quarter you get sort of what was topical in the media reflected through articles. And there's a lot right now about the cancel culture, you know, people being so fearful of yeah. other people's opinions that they will demand cancel. that these opinions be canceled so that they can't be spoken of out there. And that's an interesting phenomenon. I, I find that's uh, interesting. Uh, who you have to be that you would be so threatened by someone's opinion that your your the way that you want to deal with the other person's opinion is that it should not be heard. You know, it yeah. should be cut off. This this person should be prevented from even expressing their opinion. And I said, yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. That's kind of interesting that there must be some lack of confidence on the outraged person that they can't deal with the ideas that are, that are being expressed by the, the person mm-hmm. who threatens them. And I said, you know, it might be a better, it might be a better uh, approach on their part to uh, look into what the other person is talking about and become knowledgeable about it. And there, and then be able at a certain point to actually have uh, a very interesting conversation with that person based on what you've learned about what they've done. 
but that's a that's an alternative way of doing it. But it seems to be rejected. Well, it's not worth my effort to actually find out what this person actually is trying to express because I know right off the fact, right off the bat, that it's evil. Yeah, right. Therefore, I should I shouldn't bring myself into contact with someone's evil thought. And yeah, everything. Well, that's yeah, kind so. of the thing. But there's always these inherent, the built up enemies who's really good at foiling those things or really poking like away at the Mm -hmm. systemic error of the ways is Jordan Peterson is excellent. I I was just watching one last week. They were, someone was trying to point out how equality of, you know, opportunity for women as executives is so far skewed towards the patriarch, towards men. And Jordan started out his talk, his rebuttal, it said, well, 99.9% of bricklayers are men. And Mm -hmm. if we're going to have a discussion about equality of distribution of opportunity, why aren't we Let's start with the bricklayers. Why don't we start with the most egregious of the distribution and start with the bricklayers and really do something to dig into why is this? the truth. And she, it was so funny because she didn't want to have anything to do with, she thought that was most ridiculous. <laughs> but he's saying, yeah. if you're arguing that the system is, and the evidence that you have is in the numbers of the distribution, then why is that? And he brought out that men, just gender differences in men and women, that men by and large are much more interested in things and women are much more interested in people. And so if you're going to be an engineer, it makes sense that you are much more interested in things. And if you're going to be a nurse, it's imperative that you care more about people than things. So there's already these natural tendencies to go to things that are your, you know, within your automatic sort of um, Mm -hmm. makeup. Yeah, we have, uh, I don't know. We have one of our clients who, for 10 years of his life, was an instructor, uh, a qualified instructor in helping the Iraqi army and the Afghan army create their own equivalent of the American special forces. Okay. You know, and these are the, you know, the very best shock troops any army can have. The U.S. has them like the Navy SEALs and the Delta Force. They have, you know, they have various names for them because there's different units that do this, but they're they're highly skilled people and you send them in and, you know, and I said, well, well, take all the people that you've ever trained who, you know, somehow volunteered for this and you made them into highly effective soldiers who could rate, make raids. In other words, identify an enemy location and, you know, use your best strategies to sneak up on them and then, and then obliterate them. <laughs> right. right. Obliterate them. them. And I, I said, yes. And I says, and and as you review your experience, how many of the ones who made it through the entire training and took whatever it took to get into the best possible fighting condition, how many of them were 
men and how many of them were women. And he said it was always 100% men. Yeah. And the thing is that they weren't going there. They weren't training themselves actually to go and practice social skills when they went on those missions. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. They weren't trying. They were going to practice this destructive skills. <laughs> and men seem drawn to destructive skills, you know. And uh, yeah. Anyway, so so it's an it, so it's an interesting thing, and and I I think that in order to have a bias towards everybody being graded at the level of let's just say interpersonal social skills. You then have to you you then have to establish that only a world where social skills of this sort are the most valuable skills can be allowed to exist. In other words, that we have to have a we have to have a world where the most highly valued skills are social interpersonal skills, and those are the skills that are the most important skills. Okay, mm-hmm. we can't have it where where you know shock and awe and destructive skills can be considered the most important skills. Mm-hmm. And and my sense is, but actually we we actually need both worlds. Yeah. You, I think it's so yeah, there's and the thing, just we just get to observe these things now on mm-hmm. at the highest level at the widest scope in, in mm-hmm. the fastest time, everything is compressed. Mm-hmm. We see the impact of something. Like even with the cancel culture, you know, herd kind of thing, jumping on something right away. Mm-hmm. I, the thing that got me the most, the really interesting thing that saw this was when a little bit before the Me Too movement was the Cecil the Lion movement, which really like struck me as something that the internet just got like totally inflamed about and immediately went and stomped out. Uh, Do you remember the situation that dentist in from Michigan went over to Africa and was on a safari and killed this lion? But But then they personified him. They named him Cecil the Lion. And in the world got like hated this dentist. Every they were like the whole stampede, the full weight <clears throat> of the disapproving cancel armor army, you know, stomped all over this guy in, in Michigan. As if you didn't as if you didn't already have enough reasons to hate a dentist. <laughs> Right, exactly. Uh, but the thing I still, the, the whole thing to me to this day that seems so disturbing about it is that I have not seen a single mention of the word Cecil the Lion on the internet prior to the day that this guy, you know, that they <laughs> named him. Cecil the lion and because it seemed like it was constructed for that, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. really 
because everybody got, none of the villagers where they were, like 340 people died that year from lion attacks in the village. And they don't, they could care less about the lions. Like one less lion. That's like fewer people that are going to get killed in their village. You know, they yeah. don't, they don't care. And there yeah. are, these were, you know, licensed safaris, like real, you know, you go through the whole process to do it. It wasn't like he went in and yeah. swiped this lion. But the fact that you could create something like that and do it. And then of course, then all the me too um, stuff, was really yep. in that uh, world too. Yeah, the, yeah. The ver- something very interesting along those lines. I read an article last week, and it was how using the structure of jokes um, yeah. to understand when Twitter as a technology mm-hmm. works, and then when Twitter does not work, uh, mm. does not work, and what they may what they pointed out was is that jokes are funny to the degree that people have a great deal in common with each other and therefore yeah. they're accepting the setup that the jokester, the comedian mm-hmm. is putting out to them and then he introduces a sudden surprise that they all understand. So they all understand what the setup was and they understand what the surprise was. Mm. And the surprise requires to, there's a snap in their mind. There's a kind of a, a sudden snap in their mind when they're directed to bring two things together that they both understand, but they don't belong together. And that makes it very, fa- that makes it very funny. Yeah. And he said that, what he's noticed about Twitter is that Twitter works in the first place because the communication, the actual tweet, is to people who have things in common. Mm. Okay? Yes. You have things yep. in common and you're sending out base. messages. Where Twitter doesn't work is where you retwitter and send it out to all the people who don't have that starting thing in common with everybody else. And then they respond by being very angry and very insulting. Did you and hear very Dave, Dave Chappelle is going through that. He's refusing to be canceled. And, and people yeah. are like, and, and good for him on the, the way he's handling it. And they're realizing, oh, wait a minute, we can't just cancel somebody because his fans have a voice too. And they're on his mm-hmm. side, you know. You can't just cancel someone like that. Well, I was I was watching his little response to uh, <clears throat> Jesse Samet, you know, Jesse Samet, Jesse Smollett. Yeah, exactly. Smollett, Jesse yeah. Smollett. And so Dave Chappelle said, you know, we've just had a situation. He said, you know, a situation, a crime related situation that involved not only someone who was black and not just someone who was gay, but uh, someone who was also French, a Frenchman by the name of Juicy, Juicy Smollett. Juicy Smollett. Yeah, exactly. Okay. 
And the audience just laughed and laughed and laughed. And then Dave Chappelle walked through the, you know, he walked through the history of the incident that happened. And and what he brought in was a police officer from the Chicago police who had to write down the immediate, you know, the immediate details of what this French actor, Juicy Smollett, had actually um, encountered, or says he encountered. And he says, you were out for a walk, Mr. Smollett, you were out for a walk. At 2.47 a.m.? At 2.45 in the morning, 16 degrees below zero, 16 degrees below zero, you were out for you were out for a walk, yes, yes. And you were you were going where? To the subway at two forty five in the morning for sandwiches. For sandwiches. And he's he said, and these two individuals, as you say, came out, they rushed out and they said then they were wearing Magum, Make America Great Again. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. And they and they were saying that you're in mega territory. And it just gets funnier and funnier as he tells it. And and he says, now, there was uprage across the the entire world when this happened. But did you notice where there was no outrage at all, Mr. Smollett? There was no outrage among African-Americans. And the reason was nothing you said added up. (laughs) <laughs> oh, right, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, he said, we supported you with our silence. because <laughs> right, <right-handed>. exactly. <laughs> that's, that's it. <laughs> that's the best way. We could support you is with our silence, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. the only way we could support you with our silence because we knew there was no fucking way. <laughs> exactly. Anything you... That anything you said could be true. <laughs> I mean, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was really a beautiful performance because he, you know, and the, you know, he just pointed out the ridiculousness of the situation. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean, and it has to do that it's Chicago. It's 2.45 right. in the morning. Right. It's 16 degrees below zero. Yeah. And, and, if and they're going to recognize know, him as the guy from that Empire show. Yeah. Yeah. And if there's mega anything wearing, you want to mega know. Mega hat wearing guys. Yeah. People who are not going to be on the street in Chicago, downtown Chicago at that time, are people with mega hats. <laughs> right. Exactly. Claiming that it's their territory. You know, we yeah. own Chicago. Well, not really. And I, I think, I think what I like good. about I like what he but he does is that he informs these kind of wild situations or these wild claims with the actual physical reality of what's going on when they're supposed to have been happening. Yeah. And the the physical reality has a greater strength to say this is nonsense. This is nonsense. This couldn't have happened. You know the physical reality. So yeah. yeah. I think he's very gifted. I think Dave Chappelle is a very gifted person. Oh, very. Like, just the way that he sees things. Such a clear thinker, too. And that's an amazing uh, that's an amazing thing on its own. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think he's doing, he's doing a great job. 
But you know, it brings yeah, up a and, and you know, and he's the thing is, I read up on him, and he's not the. You know, he's not up from the streets. He's not a character who's up from the streets. His grandfather was the president of a university. His oh, yeah, exactly. father was right. a professor. His father was yeah. a professor at a so university. Was his mom, yeah. And he's very well educated. He's very well educated. So he's he can approach these things with a certain amount of you know, philosophical background, historical background. Sure, an intellectual, background. really, that's right. He's an intellectual, he's an intellectual yeah. And yeah. Uh, therefore, he, he can he can po- poke fun, he can point out ridiculousness in a way that most people can't. Because he's, yeah. you know, he's not, he's not really, he's not really engaged with the anger. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The whole you're know, thinking about this the the juicy sommelier situation and mega <laughs> country is one of the things that strikes me too right now is this sense of there is no sense of local territory anymore mm-hmm. feels mm-hmm. like like I don't you know I've, I've said to you before I growing up I definitely have this sense of having had a Canadian experience and having had a lens of Toronto with a little bit of Buffalo brought in here, right? Like in the eyewitness news and the whole thing that our lens was from Buffalo to Toronto and, you know, the newspapers were the Toronto star and the Globe and Mail and the the sun that everything that we saw and exposed to, which shaped my lens was up until really till 1984 all just that Canadiana kind of um, lens Mm -hmm. right and that you wouldn't have any exposure to or uh, connection to anything that was going on in Chicago or in like I don't remember ever really hearing anything about Chicago or about, you know, other Atlanta or, you know, all, all the big sort of regional clusters of things that were happening. And I wonder now, because your way up out of that was through the hierarchy. You had to kind of get out mm-hmm. of, you had to earn your stripes kind of thing. We were joking about, uh, there was a movie about U2, the band, and it was the movie was called uh, Killing Bono, and it was a movie about what was the second best band in Dublin at the time, and it was two, these two <laughs> rival high school bands that started up at the same time, and it was the second best band in Dublin. But you think about if you're going to be the best band in the world, you've got to be the best band in Dublin on your way up to that. And yeah, unless you're Lil Nas X and you can immediately jump the Atlanta scene and immediately get on the thing. And it struck me that we've kind of gone back now. If you take Cloudlandia, Cloudlandia is like America in 
the 50s when there were only three television stations and you could mass advertise on NBC, ABC, CBS, except instead of that, it's Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Mm -hmm. That's the one, those are the four global, you know, attention suckers. Mm -hmm. If you can get on those things, that's what's really, that's what's happening. So there's, I'd love to, because you kind of came from a traditional advertising background back in the, right at the tail end of when I would call those of where the 50s to 70s was kind of the glory yeah, years. I was there in the right? early, yeah. seven, early 70s. And you were aware that something like the golden age of advertising had happened, but you knew you weren't part of it. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I wonder yeah, now, yeah. That, is, that, is that really, that's what's kind of happening right now. It's a good analog if you start to kind of think about Well, I think that. the other thing, that, I think the other thing is that there's now competitors coming up. And the one is a very interesting thing. There's a very active site right here in Toronto on Adelaide Street. Uh, I guess it's right around the university in Adelaide, and it's called Rumble. And Rumble is pulling people from YouTube, so mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's a graphic thing. And they've been able, in their first three or four years, to pull over fifteen percent of customers who would put their videos on YouTube, but not are now putting them on Rumble. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is uh, a Canadian we're interested one? in. Yeah, it's well. No, it's wide open. I mean, it's wide okay. open. It's, it's you know they're situated in Canada, but they're inviting in Americans to put, and they're not going to have any censorship rules about right. um, you know politics. Okay, uh-huh. so they're opening up, and then there's two other initiatives that are moving towards Rumble, so that Rumble and two other things will be combined within the next year. And one of them is called Truth Social that was created by Donald Trump. And then there's another organization whose name escapes me right now. And they're putting it together and they have a lot of money and they have a lot of investors and they have a lot of action. And what they're creating is a counter to the Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube world, mm-hmm. okay? And they're coming mm-hmm. coming forward, and it's based on people who don't want to see things ideologically censored. In other words, they're willing to have their they're willing to have their content put on this new emerging media on the basis that it'll cause tension. It'll cause tension between this message and everything. And it's and what they've created is a SPAC, a special a special purpose investment vehicle. And and then at a certain point it has to define itself. They have a time period to define themselves. But it's gotten millions of dollars invested in it and, and it's the to create a counter. It'll create a 
counter platform to the ones that have clearly identified themselves with what I would say the left, the democratic, sort of the woke message. And this other platform will identify itself as being opposed to the censorship and cancel cancel culture attitudes of the other medium. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to watch. It's an interesting to watch. And Trump has, um, you know, put himself directly in it. And he created this platform, which is called Truth Social. One of the neat little things about Truth Social that he worked out was, is that anytime you go to Google and you punch in the word truth, uh, it'll immediately send you to Truth Social. So he's done this little trick with uh, YouTube, with with Google, that anybody moving to their platform to investigate the truth, any inquiries will immediately be sent to Trump's platform. So mm-hmm. that's, his little, that's his little thing. So I think we're seeing, you know, it's been more or less the narrative for the last two or three years now that anything that is not appropriate to a certain left mindset that's represented by, you know, it's represented by Mark Zuckerberg and by Jack Dorsey and by the Google, the Google gang. People are just going to get shut off. And now another medium is emerging that uh, is saying, no, there's going to be an alternative voice. Well, it's really interesting just what's happening, you know, Google and uh, YouTube and Facebook. And we do a lot of Facebook advertising simply because of the targeting abilities. You're able to Mm -hmm. target exactly Mm -hmm. who to show the message to. But what's happened is the things that I primarily do advertising in, like for real estate and franchises and, you know, employment, which would be business uh, opportunity things, they're really tightening up now uh, that you can't use any of those targeting things for for those. Like they started out, we could target on Facebook. We used to be able to go directly to a micro neighborhood. I could get your neighborhood from, you know, from Queen Street to the beach and from, you know, just that south of or the beach side of queen um you could get those all of those homes in there now you can't the minimum targeting that you can do geographically is a 15 mile circle so you have to show ads to everybody in that 15 mile radius and you can't use age or income or any of the um different variables that they have mm-hmm. for selecting people if you're offering anything to do with real estate. And now the newest one is you can't even ask for, if you offer to send them something, you can't even ask for physical mailing address because that is something that you could use to discriminate. So you're only allowed to make offers that they can get with email. And so they're making it like, you know, they're, I guess they're trying on real estate and lending 
And I love about that, you know, I love about that is that it brings forward a comment that the um, Emperor Napoleon is reported to have said that never interrupt your enemy when he's committing suicide. Mm, right. But so it's I really think interesting. That what they're doing is they're committing suicide. Well, you know, yeah, but, I mean. So if someone else comes along and allows you to make all the distinctions that you're forbidden by the other side to make, and you make all the distinctions, that means that vacated the yeah, battlefield to being, you. But I think it's being driven by the that it's the HUD, it's government um, driven that they're really feeling heat from doing untoward things or whatever, allowing people to. Year. Yeah. So they're yeah, but, in, yeah they're feeling the pressure. Well, there, to, yeah, the real problem of real estate in the Toronto is the vast amount of money that's coming into funding condo projects. For example, yeah. they just opened up the possibility of this immense condo project south of Lakeshore, and it's in the Docklands. It's now. Yeah, you haven't been here for a while, but it's entirely cleared, and they knocked off the ramp from the Gardner Expressway that's completely gone. And yeah. they're and they're now constructing new waterways. So, so they're going to put in a community that will, you know, the next phase, the first phase they're going to, that will they will have a ten thousand population in wow. condo like. Uh, and then the yeah. Lieber Brothers, you know, the big Lieber Brothers factories that were north of yep. the thing, those are being leveled, and a, an entirely new shopping center is going into that area wow. right now. Okay, so, and, and the big thing is that the thing that does not want to be mentioned, you shall not mention this in Canadian media, that the money that's coming in to finance all this stuff is coming from your great friends in communist China, your great, great, great friends in communist China are moving their money out of China as fast as they can and yes. getting it into overseas investments. And it just happens to be that Toronto is just one of those great overseas investments for red Chinese people at the top can move their money and move their children out of the country of red China. Get them safe because we don't know how safe Red China is. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. And that's the big issue. That's the big issue. I mean, if you want yeah. to talk about it. But the big issue is that creates all the little issues. That's the big issue. Yeah. And nobody wants to talk about the fact that uh, all this Chinese money is flowing into Toronto. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which I, I think just, makes I'm... the world in. Yeah. I think it makes the world interesting. Well, I have too. I mean, I just look at this in this transition. I wonder where local, where the mainland is going to um, land. What, what is like in all these movies that you see that paint this, you know, the future. Like if you look at all the movies that, you know, show the digital future where everybody's in their VR headsets. It's like the mainland has become this dystopian, neglected, you know, backstage thing that nobody pays any attention to. 
comparative. Do you actually know any people who live in those ARVR worlds? I mean, are committed uh, residents? Every the, one of those... uh, every one of our, you know, every one of our five-year-old to now twenty-year-old uh, kids is living in those worlds right now. I mean, that's really. I, it dawned on me that the interesting thing, uh, do you know who Clotaire Rapai is, who wrote the Culture Code? He's a French marketer who is well known for defining um, for companies the underlying code about why something is popular, right? Why people's first imprints with things. He did mm -hmm. work with autistic uh, children. You've probably seen him. He's a French guy who wears these, you know, fancy suits and he's got this French accent, but he talks about, he's the guy that worked with General Motors when they released the Hummer, for instance. And he determined that the code for for SUVs is domination. That's why we buy them. That's why our reptile brain buys the Hummers. Because if you look at a logical situation, most people don't ever express an interest in, it seems so counter message, right? Everything, fuel economy and all of these things. But even the rational reasons that people use for safety and for, you know, convenience and, you know, but he's saying, but you live in Manhattan, you know, it's like, why is this uh, the thing? So once he got the code for domination, his instruction for everything is, if you saw the original advertising for them was that it was to always photographed from below looking up the narrow windows. It looked authoritative. It had the epaulets on the side, the, you know, all of it was intimidating. And that mm -hmm. was what people were subconsciously seeking. So I'll told you that just to tell you one of the things that he was brought in by a company to help them crack the Japanese market for their coffee. And they couldn't figure out how to sell coffee in Japan. And every culture has a different thing. He had success with craft selling cheese in America. And he said the difference between cheese in America and Europe is that in Europe, the cheese is alive and we leave it out and you let it breathe and you, you know, that's the thing. In America, we want the cheese to be dead. And we want, it's why it's in body bags, in these hermetically sealed things that you seal the cheese and you put it in the fridge, in the morgue, that it's, you know, it, it's dead. Nothing is going to, you know, grow or be bad. It's not going to go bad on there, which is a really fundamental difference, right? When you look at it mm -hmm. and you understand it. In, in yeah. Japan, they're 
more of a tea culture than a coffee culture. They, they don't have any imprint of, and he calls an imprint, he has people go back to their very first impression or their very first encounter with things. And so in, in coffee, the Japanese had no, no imprint of coffee, right? It, it wasn't in there. What he suggested to them was to abandon the idea right now of bringing coffee into Japan, but instead take a 15-year view and introduce a line of children's desserts that are coffee flavored to introduce the flavor of coffee and pleasurable associations with it from your very first memories to in 15 years, gradually get to a point where now when they're in adult that they're introduced to this thing that harkens back to their childhood. Well, what we've been observing for the last 15 years now, since 2007 or whenever the games, video games, really became fully immersive, that every teenager right now is 100% immersed in these metaverse type of environments. They're 100% groomed that when they come into adulthood, of course, the metaverse for adults is going to be there waiting for them. And that's what's really, I think, putting the stuff on there. So it's been happening without us even knowing it, you know, without us even yeah. seeing it because we're not part of it. Yeah. Well, it still comes down to who owns what. You know? Right. Yeah. And I'm trying to understand the metaverse as the basis for property. Well, here's, I'll tell you, here's an example. One of the biggest accomplishments that they've done now several times, but Fortnite, which was the big winning game of you know, the last five years, say, is this amazing universe that you, know, you could, it's a fixed universe and you fly around and you go wherever you are. It's like a, mapped universe you can go to a particular place in Fortnite on the islands and they had they've had on several occasions now concerts but the first one that they did they had 10 million people live attending a concert by marshmallow the one of the big um, edm uh, dj and you went to the stadium or you went to the, the party area where they were doing it. And it's as if you were right there experiencing it at the stage. You're, you're experiencing the, the whole thing. You got cut off there, Dean, for about oh, uh, a minute. Yeah. Okay. So okay, you have, uh, the last point that you were that 10 million people were, Okay, ten million. Yeah, ten million people came to the concert, and we're all experiencing the same thing. 
it's pretty interesting what's the right engineering or the way that they program it, the way that they did it. It looks like you're among a few hundred people right there at the stage and you're watching Marshmallow and you're, you're, you know, his avatar, you're taking part of that whole thing. And then they just duplicate that a bunch of, you know, millions of times where 10 million people are having this same exact experience at the same time. And so now you get a sense that it would make sense if you could have a booth, you know, right now, all the things for you to be able to make in-app purchases on something, imagine if you had a booth that you could sell um, t-shirts at this merch at the concert and you just go to the thing you look at and you could click to buy the t-shirt at the thing being in front of 10 million people like that would be a big piece of geography and that's why companies like louis vuitton and big brands are buying real estate in these key locations where everybody's going to gather. So mm. the, the metaverse being formed is really where we're all going to the same place on the internet. Or that sense of all going to the same place. It's a, um, it's going to happen quickly because it's happened. It's all been happening below the scenes. It's now they're like, in the adult world, they're kind of scrambling to build the final station. But that train full of millions of Gen Z kids who are at the just turning 20 now, you know, mm -hmm. they're all 100% immersed in virtual environments and vert their NFTs, all the in app um, purchases, all of the things that are just gonna naturally equate over into the thing instead of going into into Minecraft or or Fortnite worlds where they're building and playing and competing in gaming, they're going to easily translate into going into we work type of environments where their avatar is going to go into a work space where they'll sit around and take over Bodlandia in, in a cooperative way from a more mature business standpoint. If they actually understand any business. Concept. Well, that's it. That's it. But they certainly understand. <laughs> yeah, because my sense is that, uh, uh, you know, that Cosmania is like, like a new planet, yeah. not yeah. like a new planet, but a new continent that mm -hmm. you've developed. And there's, if I understand it, that all human experience has danger and risk and hardship involved in it, that you have 10 million viewers of one act. Well, the winner seems to be the one act, not the 10 million. Okay. Mm -hmm. so. 
the, so, so my sense is that we've had this in the, you know, uh, you know, you had similar things happen earlier in history when Johann Strauss Jr. came to Boston in the 1860s. They had a concert that had 200,000 people and they had 1,500 musicians who were coordinated by um, uh, Johann Strauss Waltzes. He was the Beatles of that day. He was the Beatles of that day and everything like that. But, you know, um, there were the spectators, and the spectators are interesting and everything. But the spectators don't actually own anything. Right. The organizers of the concert own something, and Johann Strauss Jr. owns something. So, mm-hmm. so it doesn't mean that there's riches well, they to be that. made if you've shifted things, because if people are consumers in South India, they're probably their basic instincts is to be consumers in uh, if they're consumers in mainland. I think that's fair. Cons- I think that's fair to say in any situation. I mean, I would yeah. argue that a twenty-year-old circa 1971 is no far less prepared for the world than a 21 year old in, in 2021. Yeah. Especially for the future, the world, the way the future is. Yeah. 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 My, my basic differentiation is people who are creators and people who are consumers, you know, and uh, there's far fewer, Graders, and the reason is because they need a lot of consumers. So a certain number, a certain few people can be creators, and a great many of people can be consumers. And so, so my sense yeah. is that the switch over from the mainland to Cloudlandia, the numbers will probably hold. I wonder. Right. Yeah. You just got I mean, everybody I has access that, to them. You know, I've been listening for 30 or 40 years. So digital technology is going to make all people into entrepreneurial creators. But I don't yeah. see any of the I don't see any of the results, evidence indicating that, you know. Well, I don't know. I mean, you look at I would put Lil Nas X. I would put the Bridgerton musical. I would put there's lots of now. Stories where otherwise Mr. Beast, yeah, yeah, all of these. But I would say that these are the superstars, like the the, you know any previous world has had superstars. Yeah, but they just happen to be. If we ask Jordan Peterson about that's distribution, that's systemic distribution. That in any order, you're going to have the one percent. Hmm. Hmm. Be interesting to lay it out like that and to see, you know, it's not. It's it, it's just it's fascinating that it's not. It's to do with the with the, anything broken in the system per se. It's the it's a natural order of distribution mm-hmm. that one percent of any you know the top one percent of anything is going to be by far the winners by a long mm-hmm. shot. Mm-hmm. So much, I mean, it's such amazing times. You know, I think for all the talk about we're going to have fundamental breakthroughs and how people live, and there, there is a sense with 
in which that's true. And I look at how much my life is enhanced by electronic capabilities. You know, yeah. That, you know, the movement to Zoom over the last two years and yeah, you know, just generally electricity is a friendly force in my life. I really appreciate electricity in my life. But, electricity has uh, been very, very good to me. But on the other hand, what I notice is the amount of uh, people being bothered and moaning and whining seems to grow with the increase of electronic capability. Yeah, I agree. So I think the constant between excitement and unhappiness remains the same when you move from one domain to the other. Yeah, I can't wait ah. to watch it all unfold. Yep. Well, we're in the middle of it, so keep notes. That's it. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye.